As we get older, we start to notice our parents could use a little help. Help with grocery shopping, getting to appointments, and just keeping up with things around the house. For the times when we can't be there, Care.com makes it easy to find senior caregivers who live nearby and know just how to help. And since all caregivers at Care.com are background checked, you can be confident that your mom or dad is getting support from someone you can trust. Find senior caregivers for your parents at Care.com. Hello and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays. It's a weekly roundup of markets and ETF news. My name is Sean Alaka. I'm editor-in-chief here at ETF.com, or the leading publication covering everything ETFs. And with me are my colleagues, senior ETF analyst Samit Roy. Say hi. Hey, everyone. And our managing editor, Heather Bell. Hello, all. Hey, welcome to both of you guys. So let's dive right in. There was a lot going on this week, but we decided as the first half of the year kind of wrapped up today that we take a look down, back down memory lane, as they say, and recap some of the biggest news of the year. And and obviously, it's all been market driven this year. It was hard to kind of find just ETF specific news. It was really, really driven by what was happening in the markets. And that's really no surprise Wall Street has been breaking records left and right, and all of them have been terrible records that you never want to have broken. I mean, they were historically bad. Uh, we'll be diving into right into that. There are still analysts out there predicting more pain to come with this crazy high inflation that we haven't seen in decades, uh, interest rate, highest interest rate hike that we haven't seen since the 90s, and a conflict in Europe that's been the worst since World War II. So there's just been plenty of of high water marks or low water marks, should I say, that have been set this year with possibly more to come, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong, with the bond market had its worst year since like the 1700s or 1800s, something um, crazy. So let's jump right in with what's going on. We'll start with you, Sumit. What the heck is happening this year? You nailed it, Sean. It's been an awful, awful year so far. You know, the first half, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Just bad across the board. I just looked at the, the numbers. We clo- The market just closed a few minutes ago, and the S&P 500 finished the first half of 2022 with a loss of 20%. And that's just mm-hmm. ahead of the first half loss of 1970 when it lost 19.5%. And just behind the first half loss of 1962, when the S&P 500 lost 22.2%. So this is officially the worst first half since 1962. And it's no better in the bond market. Like you said, Sean, the worst bond market performance we've seen since the 1700s or something like that. Let's just say the worst U.S. bond market in modern history. AGG, the aggregate bond ETF, dropped about 10% in the first six months of the year. And, you know, big areas in the market have done even worse than those broad market ETFs. If you look at ARKK, it's down 58%. QQQ, down 29%. VWO, which tracks emerging markets, down 15%. HYG, investment grade bonds, 14% loss. LQD, um, investment grade bonds down 16%. The list just goes on and on. And the good news, there is a bit of a silver lining. History suggests that there's no correlation between the returns for financial markets in the first half of the year and the second half of the year. S&P Dow Jones research shows that 
since 1957, in the years in which the S&P 500 had a negative return in the first half, it had a negative return in the second half 50% of the time. So it's a coin flip, essentially. <laughs> so that is encouraging news. But there's an even better piece of news, which is the last two times the S&P 500 fell by around 20% in the first half. Like I mentioned, 1970 and 1962, it went on to perform amazingly well in the second half. In 1970, the market actually recovered all of its losses and more, ending with the 4% gain. And in 1962, it didn't recover everything, but it ended the year only down 8.7%. All of this is to say that just because the first half is bad doesn't mean the second half will be. A lot has already been priced into the markets. So I know we're, we'll talk about best and worst ETFs of 2022 in a bit. But uh, before we do, Heather, Sean, any observations about the markets this year? Not much besides uh, hold on to your hats. My God, it's been a wild ride. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I was I was looking at a chart before once the markets closed, looking at some of the numbers. There's actually in the Times and it was just looking at the performance of, of the first half of each year. And I, I'm not really sure what was happening in, in the 70s. I'm not a historian, so I don't know what happened in the markets. But the other two outliers or the bigger bigger ones were obviously in 01, looking at this chart, and, and 08 and 09. But I think, I don't know, the big difference with this one is that, you know, with those, we eventually kind of know what the culprit was. You know, we know in 01, it was obviously the dot-com bubble crash with all the, the tech companies folding in 0809 it was obviously we don't have to remind anyone of the mess of that with the subprime mortgages and too big to fail and all that stuff but in this one it just doesn't feel like there's one force impacting this market there's even factors abroad like i said at the at the top of the show with some things happening obviously with the conflict in in ukraine and I, I don't know. It just seems it just seems like maybe, maybe we don't know yet. Eventually, what's going to to be the root cause of all this, and what you know, what'll pop and and cause you know us to fall back into a recession. I, the good news, I guess, too, you know, to to go back to kind of the things that you said to me. Some of the good news, I mean, the banks seem to be they passed all their stress tests last week, even though you know those they're not kind of what they were when they first were imagined, but still they all kind of passed. So maybe a glimmer of hope there for some type of long-term security, but I don't know. It just sort of feels like with this, with this time around, you can't just point and say, you know, that's, that's that it's just the inflation or it's just this. And um, you know, maybe we're just in the thick of it right now and we'll have to wait for some more clarity and hindsight, but um, I don't know. It just, it, it seems like we we're not out of, out of the woods yet. Right, right. And, and it's good that you actually bought, brought up 1970s because that is the period that most people point to as being the most comparable to today. Back then, you had mm -hmm. that big oil embargo that the Arab countries put on the U.S. and energy prices mm -hmm. just went through the roof, caused tons of inflation, highest inflation in modern history, essentially, back then. Um, mm -hmm. And also, we had really high unemployment back then. So we had kind of that stagflationary environment. So on the plus side, this time around, we have the high inflation, but we don't have the high unemployment. In fact, mm -hmm. unemployment's currently around a 50-year low, 3.6%. So if we are to compare today to the 1970s, I think almost everyone would agree the 1970s were much worse. But if you look at stock market performance, the worst year was 1974. And I think the market ended down something like 29%. Yet here we are today already down 
20% on the S&P 500. So not that far from that horrible year in 1974. Mm. Yeah, and I'm just still looking at this chart. It's, it's pretty fascinating to see the just the, the first half performance. Of, this is of the S&P 500. It looks like 74, if I'm reading this correctly, which I I hope I am. I'm, but the, yeah, it was something like around 20 something. But then it looked like that first half performance the following year was plus 39% or something The first for the following year. So I know who, who knows this stuff isn't really correlated to what's going to happen next year or even like you mentioned the next six months, but, but it's crazy. Yep, totally. Totally. I think the big takeaway is you get a negative year and you get a negative first half. There's absolutely no correlation between that and what happens in the second half. I mean, I guess it just depends on what the mentality of, of mainstream or just investors in general, if they want to buy the dip or if they kind of feel like the, we haven't hit bottom yet. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But that hasn't stopped ETF issuers from issuing a bunch of, of new ETFs. Heather, maybe you can run, run down some of the most um, important or, or interesting ones that you saw this year. Well, as I've said before, uh, the year was off to a really strong start. And then Russia invaded Ukraine and everything kind of slowed down. Not notice, not that noticeably at first, but it's really dropped off. We're still ahead of last year, though. We've got around 200 launches. I'm still truing up the numbers because there were some weird things like one fund launched and closed within the first half, which is kind of wild. We've had 200 launches that I've counted so far in the first half. Last year at this time, we had 196 launches. So we're still slightly ahead. Um, closures, however, have taken off. They're not anything like they were in, I think, 2020. That was an insane year. But uh, we've had, by the end of August, we have we will have, I'm not sure how to put this. We have had 61 announced closures. So about, I think, 50 of those have completed. But by the end of August, we are looking at 61 closures. Um, by the end of August last year, we had 37 ETF shutdowns. So that's quite a jump. And I suspect it's just because of all the uncertainty in the markets, um, the poor performance, uh, issuers are not as willing to let funds incubate with all the chaos going on. The other interesting note is that uh, 121 of those launches are actively managed. So that is kind of keeping with the trend last year. Last year, we had more active ma launches than we had passively managed launches. So there's definitely um, a continuation of that trend. And honestly, with the way things are going, I kind of expect active mm. management to kind of take a strong, like be a stronger presence in the launches this year, simply because more people are going to be looking at it because owning an index fund is kind of not um, very rewarding, I think, for people right now. Um, I'm going to stick with my index funds, but I think for a lot of people, it just they they might they think or they might view active management as a way to kind of get ahead in an environment like this. I, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I think that's interesting that we saw that trend in active management in 2000. I mean, last year, 2021, where it began there, you'd think certainly this year you don't want to be following passively anyway, these indexes that are all 20 percent, you know, they're losing 20 percent. So. I could see it this year. It's interesting that I started in 2021. Are you seeing other kind of 
maybe trends towards some inverse things or some short ETFs or what, what are some of the more interesting ones that you saw? I haven't really dug into the different launches. Um, we're, we're seeing um, some like triple leveraged uh, ETNs. I think Microsectors has come out with a few. Um, Direction has been launching products um, that are leveraged into this environment. And of course, we saw the uh, inverse uh, Bitcoin uh, futures ETF just launch. I think that's probably a pretty good product yeah. <laughs> right now, um, right. although I'm not sure how much more Bitcoin can go down. But uh, what we are seeing is that we're not getting a ton of a ton of like billion dollar launches. We've You usually see a few. JP Morgan, of course, uh, converted a couple of their act, their actively managed um, and I think some index uh, based uh, mutual funds into um, ETFs this year. So those some of those were pretty big. I think one has like five billion. I think that's G.I.R.E. That's an international fund. Um and then uh, Goldman Sachs actually has a $1.55 billion fund that's basically just a Russell 1000 fund. It's basically the 1,000 largest stocks in the U.S., and it tracks a Goldman index, but it's essentially the same. It's a plain vanilla cap-weighted index, and that's got $1.55 billion. So that's pretty much the biggest launches of the year so far. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Well, you, you brought up the um, the short Bitcoin ETF, which might be a good segue. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I know Samit covered it pretty diligently the week last week, or was it the week before last? I think it was last week. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that launch, Samit, and, and also the big news of this week, which was what happened with Grayscale, which we can dive into as well. Yeah, so the short Bitcoin ETF ticker on that is BITI. That's a ProShares product. Obviously, ProShares was the issuer who launched the first Bitcoin futures ETF back in October of last year. And I wrote essentially that BITI came to market, you could say, either at the best time or the worst time. You could Mm -hmm. say best time because Bitcoin obviously is dropping through the floor seemingly every week down to about 20,000 or below from a high of 69,000. So that's obviously could be a great time for a an inverse Bitcoin ETF to launch. On the other hand, since it has already fallen, you know, how much more downside is there left? Like Heather was asking, ideally, you'd want to get into an inverse Bitcoin ETF when Bitcoin was closer to 60,000. But who knows? This is more like a tool for aggressive traders. So I don't really think it really matters when it launches. The people that would buy this type of product, they would be very aggressive short-term traders. You don't not want to hold these type of ETFs over the long term because they rebalance daily. And as we know, daily rebalancing can cause enormous performance decay over time. So regardless of where Bitcoin ends up five, 10 years from now, it's very high. Like there's a high likelihood that BITI is going to be lower than where it's trading right now, just the way daily rebalancing and the math behind that works. So that's BITI. And, you know, that was obviously one of the bigger stories in Bitcoin ETF land this year. But it got overshadowed this week because we got kind of a bombshell where uh, Grayscale, who's the 
who's the company behind GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, they sued the SEC after the SEC blocked Grayscale from converting GBTC into an ETF. And, you know, everyone kind of saw this coming, right? A few weeks ago, before the SEC's decision, Grayscale hired a guy who was the solicitor general in the Obama administration, obviously a very experienced, high-powered lawyer. So they were gearing up for this fight, and that's now what we have. Uh, Grayscale says that the SEC is essentially acting arbitrarily and capriciously because it allows Bitcoin futures ETFs, but it doesn't allow spot Bitcoin ETFs. Now, there were some interesting things that the SEC said. They, they countered that there are very specific rules which it is following that are preventing it from approving a spot Bitcoin ETF. And they essentially center around this idea that Bitcoin spot markets are prone to manipulation and fraud. And so they like to see the sharing of information between a major crypto exchange and the NYSE ARCA, which is where the potential grayscale Bitcoin ETF would be listed. But the SEC says that the NYSE hasn't made the so-called surveillance sharing agreement, so the ETF can't be approved on those grounds. Another interesting point that the SEC made was it doesn't matter if a spot Bitcoin ETF is a better product than what's already out there on the market. The fraud and manipulation concerns that the SEC has supersede those. Mm -hmm. They also said um, that the Bitcoin futures market is distinct from the spot Bitcoin market because Grayscale made the case that those two markets are inextricably connected the SEC simply disagrees with that view. It said that even though Bitcoin futures are cash settled based on prices from spot exchanges, that only happens on the final settlement date once a month, not on a daily basis. And so the futures contracts are somewhat disconnected from the spot markets on a day-to-day -day basis. And additionally, since uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs roll their contracts before the final settlement date, they never are directly connected with the spot markets. I don't know if I buy that logic completely. If prices eventually converge towards the final settlement price, which is based on prices on spot exchanges, then of course you're gonna see an impact on futures prices on other dates uh, from the spot markets. Anyway, that's the crux of the debate. Um, you know, where do you, where do you guys stand, Heather, Sean, on this big upcoming battle? Well, I kind of agree with you. I mean, if the Bitcoin market can be manipulated, it's going to be reflected in the futures market. Have you ever um, have you ever like run a graph of how closely the Beto tracks with the actual price of Bitcoin to meet? Oh, they're very close. Very close. There's a little bit of a drag on BITO's returns from those roll costs. But other than that, super tight correlation. Wow. The SEC has, you know, this kind of technical rules that is following. Yeah. But from a practical standpoint, I totally get where Grayscale is coming from. These two markets move in tandem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say. And who knows where this is going to ultimately end up? I think ultimately we we have to see a spot product at some point get get sanctioned by the by the SEC. But I think they're they're 
there have some fears. I mean, there are certainly market manipulation issues, I think, that need to be kind of addressed. Certainly when you have, you know, a lot of celebrities and endorsements and things like that, a lot of people that probably aren't as educated as they maybe should be entering into some of these crypto exchanges. You know, it's 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 such a new kind of terrain that I, you know, I, I think that the, the SEC is probably right to kind of be wading into it cautiously. Are they waiting too cautiously? I'm not sure. We're certainly getting lapped by a lot of other countries around the world. But I don't know. That's super interesting stuff, Samit, for sure. Thanks for breaking that down. We'll have to leave the conversation right here for now, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Exchange Traded Fridays. It's from ETF.com. If you liked it, please go to your favorite podcast app. Search for Exchange Traded Fridays. You can like it, share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues. You can find us on any of uh, the podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcast, will be there. Thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you all next time. Have a good day, everybody. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.